Dorsey, and I am just delighted to be with you tonight. Welcome to Thrive Online tonight. And I hope wherever you're at, you are, you got a cup of hot cocoa, you've got a cup of tea, you're snuggled up on the couch, whatever it is you're doing. And uh, we're going to kick off a series tonight, and I think we're going to find it really beneficial. The relationship, uh, or the series is going to be called Relationship Wise. We'll be going through the entire month of uh, February and into the 1st of March. And tonight we're going to kick that off talking about this idea, what are the benefits of marriage? And before we get into it, I want to say just a couple quick things. The first is, don't forget that this coming Sunday is Pastor Sam and Pastor Brenda's uh, anniversary, and we want to make sure we come prepared to honor them and love them and care for them well. And uh, even more, both for the longevity and the season they're in, we just want to make sure that we represent Christ well to them and they know they're cared for and loved, supported, and celebrated. And I also want to encourage you, if you are uh, married, make sure that you are here the rest of the month. Not everything is going to be about marriage, but this is going to have a lot of content that could almost function like a, a refresher, almost like a weekly marriage retreat for you and your spouse. But if you are single, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the benefits of marriage. Next week we're going to be talking about sex. The following week, though, is a special week dedicated to singleness. And not just sort of like, how do you get through it, but what's, what's the meaningfulness there? What's the purpose there? It's going to be really, really good after that conflict and then a special week on gender. And uh, we're saving that kind of for the end for a little bit more robust conversation on that. And I just encourage you to be a part. And if you are single, still come for the series. Marriage is one of those relationships that it, it kind of is a little intensive version of every other human relationship we have. And so many of the things that we're talking about, they will have application in your close friendships, they'll have application in your family outside of marriage, and so I encourage you to be a part of those. But tonight, we're going to begin with that question, what are the benefits of marriage? And this is such a great question because marriage is actually you know, it's it's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging, and there are benefits to it. Uh, you have a built-in best friend, which is great. If someone to care for you when you're sick, this very morning, my wife saved my life. I was choking on a piece of toast, gave me the Heimlich, and I'm here to tell the story about it. So that was a great benefit. There's obviously, you know, physical intimacy. All of those are wonderful things, but there are also challenges. There are the challenges of working together with another person, learning how to lay down you know, your rights and your desires for someone else, learning to listen to someone else who is very different than us and, and to love well. And we know that today there's actually, you know, there's a significant trend away from marriage. And I think it's great for those of us who are married and for those of us who aren't married and, and who are kind of on the fence about whether that's what we want for our future to ask the question, well, what are the benefits? What did God design it to do? And that's what we want to chat about tonight. And I think we need to start with saying that it's not all hard or no one would ever do it. If all of marriage was difficult, lots of people have that pre-marriage or just after marriage honeymoon phase. And uh, I remember when uh, Pam and I began dating and, uh, it, you know, it was one of those situations where we would go for two hour long walks together in February out in the snow. Uh, I would come home from work and she would come home from work. And, you know, you, you probably don't even have great job performance because you're thinking about each other all day long. And then you get home and if, if you're making the call, you don't want to wait too long because you want them to know you care, but not too soon so that you're not desperate. And we would talk for hours. And uh, it wasn't long after, after all of that that we ended up getting uh, engaged and then four months later getting married. 
And if you are married, you probably have a story something like that. You got into this relationship that was emotionally very intense and, and very rich and all of these feelings associated with it. And then you got engaged and you got married. And then if you were like the vast majority of people in the Western world, at some point, your relationship began to just kind of normalize a little bit. It began to calm down a little bit. Some of those intense feelings, like you stopped getting nervous when you saw the phone was ringing from them. You, you stopped getting uh, anxious when you might get a text from them or something like that. And I know that if some of us are young marrieds or we're not quite married, we're like, no, no, I'm always going to do that. You know, they kind of believe that's going to be the case. And I hope that is the case for you. But in almost every relationship, that in, even in the healthiest of marriages, there's this kind of lowering of the emotional intensity over time. And uh, when that happens, all of a sudden we begin to see each other, not through the lens of the emotional experience that we're having, but a little bit more in line with who we really are. And we begin to have our first substantial disagreements. We begin to have our first really substantial moments to lay down our rights for each other. And that's when marriage gets really, really difficult. And for uh, my wife and I, that was definitely the case. If you're watching and you're an Enneagram person, um, I am an 8-7. And uh, if you know anything about the Enneagram or if you Google that, it is really, really disturbing how many really horrible people were 8-7s. They're people with strong personalities and uh, it says things like they're selfish, they're controlling, they want to get their own way. And my wife is a nine. That's a peacemaker. And when you look that up, it says like they're caring, nurturing, comforting. And then if you look up like what are ideal pairings between people, almost every one of these says, if you are a nine, whatever you do, do not marry an eight, seven. And oh my goodness, that really played out in our young married life where I really wanted to love her well, but I would come on with my strong personality, and then she would sort of wither under that, and then I would just shut down because I didn't want to hurt her, and then she would think that I was punishing her by not talking to her. It was really difficult to manage. Then we brought our own histories into the relationship. She comes from a family that, that has its own history. I came from a family that has its own history, and we just found that it was hard, that communication could be hard that listening to each other could be hard, that understanding what each other really wanted, expectations could be really hard, that sexuality could be really challenging, and all of our personalities and histories kind of blended together to make it difficult. So the question is, you know, why do we do it? If it's all that work, if it's so challenging, like what is it for? And I wanna to try to give one kind of theological statement, if we can tonight, and then I want to tease that out into kind of three applications, and we'll kind of move through that very quickly. But I want to really hone in on this initial theological statement. And if we were gathered together, we'd have it on the big screen, and it would make it a little bit easier. But I'll give it to you, read it to you twice, and let's really try to track with this. And here's the statement. Covenant marriage with another image of God, imago Dei, we say in Latin, with another person, is the closest human experience we can have to being in relationship with God himself. And it functions as a relationship where we learn to be in meaningful relationship with God and with others. Let me read that for you one more time. Covenant marriage with another imago Dei, another image of God, is the closest human experience you and I can have to what it means to be in relationship with God himself. 
And it functions as a relationship where we learn to be in meaningful relationships with God and with other people. Now, let me show you a little bit of where that's at in Scripture. We'll talk about that and then those three kind of instances of that and how that works out in marriage. So if you, uh, maybe you, you have a Bible there right with you, but this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And it is in the English Standard Version. And here's what it says. As the Scriptures say, that's a, introducing an Old Testament quotation, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united in one. And here's the phrase I want you to see. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Now, for Paul, a mystery has a very specific meaning. A mystery is a human experience that helps us understand the gospel of Jesus Christ with greater clarity. So earlier in the book of Ephesians, he doesn't say great mystery, but he does say mystery. And he says, when the Jews and the Gentiles come together, they are loved by Christ, the Holy Spirit is present there with them, and they're loving one another in a way that's not possible outside of the gospel, that that is a mystery, that both the people inside of that community can look at the Spirit working across these different nationalities and ethnicities, and people outside can look in and see that, and it shows them something about the mission of God and the love of God for all people. So it makes something invisible, visible because of the human experience. And marriage is the only thing that Paul ever calls a great mystery. And I think what he means by that is that it's the very best human experience at showing us what it is like to be loved by God, to learn to love God, to clarify the gospel for us. And this is really baked right into the cake of the structure of how God created the world. You remember I said it introduces that as it is written, as the scripture says in Ephesians 5, that introduces an Old Testament passage, and most of us probably know what that is. It goes all the way back to the garden, talking about the creation of Adam and Eve. And in that account, both Adam and Eve are called Imago Dei, the image of God. And I want you to think about this phrase, that God designs the form of something specifically to accomplish its function. God creates the form of something specifically to, to perform its function. So if Adam is made in the image of God, his function then is to bear that image to Eve. And if Eve bears the image of God, her function, because of her form, is to bear witness to, to, to show, to demonstrate the image of God to Adam. And so Adam and Eve's relationship to each other is bound up in what they are, the image of God, calling them to image God to each other in their marriage. And so if we can just put it in very, very simple terms, but beautiful terms, Adam's mission in marriage, one of the benefits, and we'll start to tease those out, Adam's mission in marriage is that he would be the image of God to Eve. And on that last day of her life, when she takes her last breath and she closes her eyes in, in death and she opens her eyes to see the Lord, that the Lord would look familiar because she has been loved by Adam, who is in the image of God. And the purpose, the mission of Eve is the same for Adam, that when Adam would close his eyes, open his eyes and see the Lord, 
that he would say, something about being in your presence, God, feels familiar because I have been loved by Eve who is in your image. And marriage continues throughout all of scripture to be this really close like metaphor, this really close linkage between what it means to be loved by God, what it means to love God is reflected right down in how we engage in marriage. I'll give you a couple examples very, very, very quickly here in just a moment. But think for a moment, if you think about the prophets, it says that if the people of Israel, if they commit adultery, it says that it is viewed against as idolatry against God. Why? Well, because a person is looked at as a human, at another human, and said, I have options. And then they have that same treatment of God where they look at God and they say, God, I have options. That there is this inextricable linkage between how we treat our spouses and how we treat God. And that is on purpose. That's on accident, or on, that's not on accident. It's because God created it as a place for us to learn to know him. So go back to that theological statement, covenant marriage with another imago Dei. If I'm in, if I'm in a marriage relationship with someone who's in God's image, that is the closest human experience I'll have to being in flesh-on-flesh relationship with God. And it trains me how to love God and how to be loved by God. So tonight, like I said, we'll tease out just three little implications of that, and we'll try to do that fairly quickly. But what are the benefits? What do we learn? What do we get from marriage that we would not get if we weren't involved in that relationship? Number one, marriage tests our desire for deeper and more meaningful relationship with God and with others. Now, I don't know if you can remember back to when you were first married, but we're a little bit ridiculous, aren't we? I mean, we we believe that every little thing about the person is adorable. You know, we see their left nostril is a little bit bigger than their right, and it's so cute. You know, we, we have all these little quirky things that we do because we're in the process of discovery. And the reason we do that, and it's amazing, we can show this on a brain scan, is that these neurotransmitters are flooding our brain and it actually simulates almost like what it would be to be on drugs. We are quite literally kind of stoned on love and infatuation for another person. We get releases of dopamine in the brain and that's something that makes us wanna repeat being with that person. It ties us to that person, intensely pleasurable. It's a chemical that has to do with addiction. That's what happens to us. And when we get those those rates of dopamine, it actually increases our stress hormones and decreases our anti-stress hormones. But because we feel so good from the dopamine, we don't notice that we're hyper fixated like we would be if we're stressed, but we feel so good we don't notice it. Uh, Some brain scientists say that it actually almost replicates like an obsessive compulsive disorder, only it's fixated on one person. So we're obsessive compulsive about that person. At the same time, we get these massive doses of oxytocin. If you don't know what that does in the brain, it causes us to trust people. It's an optimism chemical. And that's the reason when someone is dating somebody, maybe you look at that person, you're like, what are you thinking? The reason that they don't see the stuff you see is oxytocin is flooding their brain and they're interpreting everything they see through kind of these rose-colored glasses. So if they're walking through the grocery store with their newly found beloved and the person has a, a knife this large that they carry with them, they think to themselves, wow, this person is such a great protector. Like they put a positive spin on everything, but it's happening to them because of this hormone structure. But I can illustrate that if we were to take a room full of investors and we were to give one group uh, oxytocin we can do that through a nasal spray and another group of placebo and we give them opportunities to invest 
the ones who have had the oxytocin are twice as likely to go ahead and put money on the table and say we're going to invest because they're feeling optimistic. They're trusting the people who are talking to them because their brain is being flooded by that. And it's to me, it's fascinating because I think we have to ask the question, like, why would God design it to be that way? And I have a little theory. You can take it for what it's worth. I think that if we met each other as real humans and all of us had a t-shirt on and it said, hi, I'm JP. I'm self-conscious about this. I get angry when people do this. I'm petty and selfish in this way. I can be a little bit this, a little bit that. Here's my history. Here's my past. I think we would all die single. <laughs> I think if we, everybody knew each other as we were right at the beginning moment, we would just be like, that is too difficult. That is too challenging to be in that relationship. And God says, okay, I'll make you a deal. I'm going to make you feel awesome about this. You're going to jump into this covenant relationship. I'm going to show you how great it can be. And then I'm going to kind of lower those chemicals and you're going to start to be able to see what it really takes to make this marriage work because it's so valuable to you as a husband and to you as a wife to be part of it. I love scripture actually kind of shows these two kinds of love, this early kind of kind of really almost neurotic love and then a more mature love later. So if you go to Song of Solomon chapter three, verses one through four, and I love this because it's a newly married couple and she wakes up in the middle of the night and she realizes that her husband is gone. And maybe he's out taking care of an animal, something like that. It's an agricultural society. But she wakes up, and that's where we pick up. And she says, on my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. In other words, she woke up, and he's not there. Now, this is how you know they're newlyweds. If they were not newlyweds, and the wife woke up, and the husband wasn't in the bed, she would just stretch out on the king-size bed and be like, finally, a good night's sleep. That's what she would do. But in this case, she's like, where is he? And she begins to go out into the street, and she's looking for her beloved. And when she finally finds him, I love it, it says, I held him, and I would not let him go. That is that, like, I am oxytocin, dopamine, everything is flooding my brain. I'm fixated on this person. And all of that can sound fairly familiar. But that begins to, as we said, normalize over time. And we begin, to get, we begin to get into something that is a little more mellow. Now, we said this is a metaphor for our relationship with God. Think about this for a moment. The same dynamic happens to us often as Christians. We first become a Christian, and if we were in bondage to an addiction to drugs or to pornography, and God sets us free, that gives us a feeling, and we jump in, we're like, this is awesome, right? Or, or maybe we felt unloved and uncared for, or like we didn't have a father who loved us or parents who loved us, and we experience the love of God, we get a feeling, we're like, this is awesome. Maybe we had a tremendous sense of guilt, and we experienced the forgiveness of God, and that leads to a feeling where, like, this is awesome. But if you have been a Christ follower for any time, you know that at some point, that initial just sort of like, this is, this is everything, that begins to lessen. And that isn't always bad. Because it's a picture of, I have this experience, I see what this relationship can be. But now, I also need to get down to the work of really working this relationship out into the rest of my life. So we contrast that Song of Solomon passage with something like 1 Corinthians 13. And you probably know it, right? It's not like, I'm looking for him, I'm frantic, I desire him, everything is awesome. It's, oh, by the way, love is hard. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy and boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. 
it's not irritable or resentful when your spouse eats the last bit of ice cream or whatever it is. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Well, that is totally different. And the point is, is in the marriage relationship, we have this big explosion of discovery. And it's awesome and it's true. But as that begins to settle in, we now have to do the hard work of building a relationship where both people are really cared for. Where we're not approaching it as someone who's getting an emotional reward but we're approaching it as someone who is there to give the other person something. And we also, in the, our relationship with the Lord, at first we have this beautiful moment of discovery, and it begins to lessen and realize, oh, I'm not just here to be blessed, but I'm also here to be changed and conformed into the image of God so that I can please God, I can be in relationship with Him, and I can, He can look at my life and see that I am, I'm being transformed into a person who is like Him and walks in this world like Him. So remember that original little piece of theology. Covenant marriage with another image of God, Imago Dei, is the closest human experience we can have to being in a relationship with God. And in that relationship, we learn how to be in relationship with God. You know, it's often the case that the things that make our marriage hard are the exact same things that are making our relationship with God hard as well. That addiction to performance or overwork or the attaboys we get from, from working too hard and overwork that keeps us too busy to spend quality time with our spouse, that's probably the same addiction to overwork and success that keeps us too busy to maintain a meaningful prayer life and a fellowship life with God. Our relationship with our spouse is designed to do that to highlight for us things that might be impacting our relationship with God. Maybe our spouse wants to have you know, meaningful conversation about how it makes them feel when they feel as though we're giving attention to other people that only belongs to them. Maybe we're being slightly flirtatious. We maybe feel like they're being petty or insecure or jealous, but love is jealous. And sometimes that can be a way of understanding that Maybe that we are also uh, flirting a little bit at the edges of giving our attention to other things uh, besides the Lord. Some people think their spouse is you know, trying to control them. What I found is a lot of people who feel their spouse is trying to control them also have a difficult time with operating in the Lordship of Christ in their life. See, there's a relationship between those two things because she's Imago Dei or he's Imago Dei, the husband or the wife. And if I'm having a hard time relating to the image of God in them, it might be a sign that I'm also having a similar struggle with God himself. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think it asks, asks us to ask the question, what are the benefits? Well, when I'm having a difficult time in relationship with my wife, or you are with your husband or wife, and we're seeing a roadblock to moving that relationship forward, it would be really appropriate in that moment to say, I wonder if there's a corollary. If there is a similar problem happening between the Lord and I in our relationship. So number one, marriage tests our desire for a deeper and more meaningful relationship with God. Number two, marriage teaches us to be less selfish and more mindful of the mission of God and the needs of others. This kind of hinges about off of what we've talked about already. But, and whether we want to admit it or not, most people get in a romantic relationship for a purpose that centers around their own needs. 
Now, uh, my wife and I have been doing marriage counseling and marriage conferences and hanging out with people who are of marriage age for a long time. And probably in a hundred different ways, I've asked the question of a single person, why do you want to get married? And I can tell you the answer I've never received. And that is that I want to make someone else's life better. My life is so rich, so full, almost always it is I want a companion. I want someone to meet this need or make me feel this way. And that isn't all bad, but you can see that that is all one directional. And sometimes if you listen to even popular music or you listen to movies that are romantic and you listen to the language, even the things that we affirm as values in the other people, the reason we affirm them is because then they have a, an effect or a benefit that is positive toward us. And I think we need to be really careful about that because we go back to that original theological assertion and the original in Genesis that the form of something determines its function. If we're made in the image of God, then my function is to be that image of God for someone else. I'm participating in the mission of God to them. So we could go back to that love of Song of Solomon, you know, all of that sort of beautiful, emotional, uh, early kind of love and we contrast that then with another passage, Ephesians chapter 5. And here we have it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the opposite, right, of a love that is asking, what do I get from this relationship? He's actually saying, husbands, I want you to love your wives. And wives, I want you to love your husbands the way that Christ loves the church. Do you see the connection all the way back to Genesis? I want you to be image of God to each other. And I want you to do that by giving yourself up for them so that it reminds them of the giving of Jesus in, the, in his life, death, and resurrection because it is the great mystery. All of this kind of ties together. So when love matures, it stops being so much about my needs. Now, I'm delighted to have my, my needs met. I'm delighted to be loved, to be cared for. But it stops being as much about that. And it starts being more about how do I participate in God's radical love for my spouse? Like beginning to actually get a kick out of thinking, what is it that God would do for my spouse today? And how do I behave in a way that would remind them of that? So if my spouse is, is, has, has maybe even failed in some way, they've had a, a bad attitude or maybe they've lost their temper, not asking myself, how does that impact me? Not that that's not a valid conversation. We're not legitimizing abuse. We're not legitimizing anything like that. That's a whole separate category. I'm talking about just being human. We all have our times. And in a moment like that, saying, what would Jesus say to my spouse? And, I, and you think, man, Jesus would probably look at my spouse and be like, Peter, hey, come on back. I want to restore you. Then let me go do that. Let me be the aggressor and remind them of what Jesus is doing. Because that's what Jesus does. He's chasing down the prodigal. He's chasing down the Peter. He's after them. But this is not at all what culture is teaching. And in that process of learning to love my wife that way, in that process of learning to love your husband or your wife that way, we not only learn to be the image of Jesus to them, but we learn to look at Jesus and say, I have everything that I need in you. Now, how can I serve you? How can I please you? What is it that I could do for you that would remind you of my love, which by the way, is only a reflection of your love. It's just bouncing off of me and coming back to you. It's this process of learning that we all have a lot of selfishness tucked inside of us. 
and learning to when we are in moments where we are not blessing ourselves, we're not being Jesus, go to the cross, go to Jesus, and to be more conformed to his image. I can't help but be reminded of uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And you might remember the details of it. Jesus is feeding all the people. And of course, there are way more than 5,000 people there. There are women and children there that aren't in the official counting. And everybody thinks Jesus is awesome. Why? Because they are receiving something, right? And then Jesus, after they're full, he, he stands up and he preaches the sermon. And here's what he says. He says, by the way, unless you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood, like, you can't be my disciples. And what he's really saying is, is that I didn't just call you here for, for this big, emotional, positive experience. That's good. And I mean that. I want to bless you. But I'm also calling you to do the hard work of being someone who loves in a world that is unloving. I'm calling you to be someone who suffers graciously when you are wronged by others who brings restoration and redemption to people around you, who lays down your life for people who have hurt you and who have offended you. He says, you're going to have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. We're going to have to be the same person. I'm calling you to be that. And you probably remember what the story says. He says, many departed from him that day. And in marriage, we learn that we can be the people sometimes who want all the benefits of covenant without any of the commitment of covenant. And that marriage relationship can cause us to then ask the question, am I, am I behaving that way in my relationship with God? It can be a test of our ability to love others, to serve well, both other people and God. And it's not a cause for condemnation. It's just a moment to say, I'm not good at that. And God created this marriage relationship to highlight that for me so that I could be more like Jesus to other people around me and so I could love Jesus better and be loved by Jesus better. That was number two. Number three, and we will wrap this up. Number three, marriage trains us to be dependent on God and to exercise a high level of commitment to him and to others. And we're going to talk more about uh, sex and sexuality next week. So we'll expect attendance to be up for that uh, talk. But I do want to talk about sexuality just for a moment in one particular way. Because when we come into the marriage relationship, I think most people, their sexual experience, if I can describe it this way, is a little bit more uh, matingful than meaningful. The pent-up demand, right? And if you've been raised in, in youth group or church, you're just like, this is, this is the thing. This is the promised land that you've been called to. And uh, that doesn't help that we have the sort of pornification of culture where we view that as the very sort of pinnacle of human experience. And that's not all bad. God designed us to want to have pleasurable, repeated sexual encounters with a person we love. And all these neurotransmitters have memory responses tied to them. And it's basically marking in our brain, this is your person. This is your human. This is, this is the one that God has given you to love and the one that God has given you to be loved by. And uh, we could certainly go into Song of Solomon, probably the whole book, and see that dynamic play out. But in marriage... Again, there is often a settling down of that. And it then becomes the job for each spouse to look at each other, for the female with her often more complicated uh, libido, her more complicated body, and for her to say, I am totally dependent on you as my husband. 
I cannot take care of this myself. I cannot have someone else take care of it. If my sexual desire is going to be fulfilled, it is going to be you and you only. I'm dependent on you. And the same thing for the husband with maybe a slightly less complicated uh, sexual libido and sexual uh, anatomy, but saying that if I'm going to be satisfied, if I'm going to be loved, if I'm going to be cared for, I have no one but you that I can't take care of it myself. I can't take care of it with another person. I am at your mercy. And you probably see the analogy very, very quickly that it trains us for dependence on God. This is the reason that adultery and idolatry are essentially the same offense against God. Because one says to our spouse, I have options, and idolatry says to God, I have options. So fidelity to our spouse, dependence on our spouse, open communication about our needs with our spouse, and waiting on them, trusting them, being patient for them, even when maybe things don't work out in the moment because of various physical needs or emotional needs or life demands, all of those train us to wait on the Lord, to be faithful to the Lord, and to be dependent on the Lord. So marriage trains us to be dependent on God and to have a high level of commitment. So why do we wed? What what are the benefits of marriage? In marriage, we learn uh, to be loved by God, to love God better, to experience God, to participate in his mission, to be dependent on God. And we also learn that when I have these human relationship interactions with my spouse, that it might highlight an area that I need to grow in my relationship with God that would deepen that relationship and make it more satisfying, more full, and richer between God and me, and would be more pleasing to the Lord and bring more meaningfulness and life to me as well. Because everyone thinks they're a disciple when you don't have any commitments. When you get into a relationship where you now, for the rest of your life, have said, I will be Jesus to you, and I will learn to receive of Christ from you, it places demands on us. So God has created this beautiful sacred laboratory, a kind of training area, pressure cooker, a discipleship school designed by God to give us a lifetime spent with someone who's in the image of God, a representative of God, to train us to be more like God. I don't know about you, I think that's worth doing. So I guess what I would say is if if we're a person who says, I want with all my heart to be the most like Jesus that I can, I want to love Jesus the best I can and learn to be loved by Jesus the best I can. Paul's word is that if you want to do that, marriage is the great mystery. It's the best at revealing it. Now, if you are watching tonight and you're not married, the good news about this is that those same kind of benefits, I think they're intensified in marriage, and that's why Paul describes it as the great mystery. But those same kinds of benefits can happen to us in a meaningful relationship with our family, a meaningful relationship with a friend. And those are the moments where we say, hey, I'm going to pick a friend. I'm going to pick a close person to me, and I'm going to be committed to them. If they disappoint me, if they hurt me, if they harm me, uh, I'm going to be committed to them. Now, again, we're not talking about abuse. We're talking about people being humans. And in that relationship, we can experience some of that same kind of dynamic. And it's rich. And we're now, if we think about it that way, we're walking around in a world full of people that we can learn to be loved by and see it as a reflection of his love. And we can learn to love that will also help us have a better relationship with God. Really wonderful stuff. 
hey, next week we're going to be talking about human sexuality and why. Like, why did God create this amazing thing to be the way that it is? What does it do in the mission of God? And that's going to be a really, really great conversation. We're looking forward to that. And before we go tonight, I just want to remind you that, that uh, this Sunday, as we said, Pastor Sam and Pastor Brenda's uh, anniversary, 16 years of faithful ministry. We want to celebrate and love them. And want to remind you, if you've got someone in your life that you say, wow, they could really benefit from a time concentrating on their relationship with each other, invite them out next week for Thrive, and we'll look forward to seeing them there. Let me pray with you, and we'll be done tonight. Father, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for all the married folks that are gathered together tonight. I pray you would bless them. And I pray the next time there's conflict, instead of asking the question, how do we get this to end or how do we get our way, help us to lean in a little closer and say, is there something I need to learn here about myself that will not only help me love my spouse better, but will help me love God better and be loved by God better. Help us to look at our spouse and say, this is my great opportunity to learn to love like God and to learn to be loved by God and be in relationship with him. For my single friends, God, I pray that you would give them a special committed relationship, someone they love and that loves them, that they can do this incredibly meaningful and valuable work with. Learning to love and learning to be loved in a committed relationship where we get the opportunity to grow, to repent together, to become more like you together. We ask that you do that, that our relationships would be richer and that you would be more pleased and we would know you better and be loved by you more, be able to experience your love more because of what happens in those human relationships you've created. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. It's been wonderful to be with you tonight, and we'll look forward to seeing you this Sunday for a very, very special celebration service. God bless you.